Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. The following articles are from the February 2023 Opera News, and we'll begin by finishing the remainder of Special Blend. In a June 2022 Zoom interview, Liverman and Jackson cite the importance of the black church before they began formal training. Jackson talks about playing the tambourine, singing in choirs, and falling in love with music that way. Liverman adds, I grew up studying piano, but I was raised in the gospel church. Instinctively, we create as artists. It's just what we do. If there is no music, we learn everything by rote. It was always in me to be creative. The factotum came out of a coincidence of experience, vision, and invention. Liverman, a baritone with flexibility and a high extension, made his professional debut as Rossini's barber at Utah Opera in 2013. As his career was growing, Liverman says, Figaro was becoming my calling card. The idea for the factotum arose organically. What sparked it was every time, no matter where I go on a gig, you got to find the black barbershop in town, he says. I was sitting in the barbershop one day and just had the idea, just thinking about Barber of Seville that I was in, and sitting in a black barbershop and marrying the two together. Jackson adds, We know the black barbershop, so we also know what needed to be. For those who have never been to a black barbershop, or have not seen Tim Story's 2002 movie Barbershop, the barbershop is a critical space in black culture where pride, aspiration, education, a little hustling, and a lot of hanging out all converge. Liverman spells it out. Yeah, we knew we needed a bootleg guy, he says. We knew we needed the guy that just sits there and plays chess all day, old heads. We had this idea to implement a barbershop quartet, and calling them the old heads. Well... It's an old idea now, but this is how it started. A lot of just throwing out ideas, like making songs in the studio and figuring out what it was. The factotum takes Rossini's Barbieri di Sevilla as a starting point and moves into its own territory with allusions to Rossini's score. DJ King Rico will be on stage during the performance, along with an 18-piece orchestra playing his tracks. The musical styles include gospel, funk, hip-hop, R&B, barbershop quartet, and trap. Vocally, Liverman wants to make sure that the operatic singers that we have singing will be singing operatically. He wants them to just sing with your full voice as you would your Tosca aria. If you're thinking patter, like wordy hip-hop things, think of Rossini patter. This blending of musical styles and classical singers who can move between them highlights a central issue that Jackson identifies as bringing things together that are usually kept apart. In the Creating the Factotum video, filmed at an early workshop during the pandemic, Jackson says, It's all collaborative at the end of the day. 
because opera singers are some of the best trained singers in the world. If you match that level of training with the story we're telling, if we can connect with them to be their full selves, to bear it all out, I feel that the musicality in that is going to be a different thing that I wasn't even thinking about before this week. The site of a black barber shop on Chicago's south side is a place that could conjure danger and foreboding for some. Because Rossini's Barbieri is a comedy, both Liverman and Jackson wanted to keep the spirit of the upbeat tone and bring out the love story and character growth. But the core of the drama is shaped by something else that Liverman outlines when he speaks for the compositional team. We really wanted to emphasize black joy, celebrating being black, and the barbershop is the best place to do that, he says, because it's where we can be truly our authentic self, a place of joy for us, just joking and laughing and just having a good time. It's a place where we feel safe. More than an updating of Rossini's opera, the factotum adds to the growing number of operas that reveal fresh spaces, people, and narratives to audiences and performers. In the factotum, we can focus on a new portrayal of the humanity in black folks with fleshed-out hopes, fears, aspirations, and triumphs. Naomi Andre, the David G. Fry Distinguished Professor of Music at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, is a professor emerita at the University of Michigan, a National Humanities Center Fellow, and the author of the award-winning Black Opera, History, Power, Engagement. And now, Behind the Scenes by Louise T. Gunter. Liner Notes, Donna Leon. The Basics. Donna Leone is the author of more than 30 novels in the Commissario Guido Brunetti murder mystery series set in Venice and featuring quotations from Mozart librettos. Leone's first standalone novel, The Jewels of Paradise, had a Baroque opera scholar as its protagonist. Leone's love for Handel and other Baroque composers dates back to the 1970s. She was a patron of the ensemble Il Complesso Barocco, until its dissolution, and she now lends her support to Il Pomodoro. Her nonfiction books include a collection of essays, My Venice, reflecting on life in her longtime home city, and two collaborations with Il Complesso Barocco, Venetian Curiosities, which pairs intriguing tales and customs of Venice with music by Vivaldi, and Handel's Bestiary, an illustrated collection of animal stories paired with arias referring to them. Opera News What was the first opera you ever saw? Donna Leon In the 60s, I went to the Met out of curiosity, having heard some operas on the radio. I chanced upon Tosca with, if memory serves, Zinka Milanoff. It is indeed a shabby little shocker, but who cares? I fell in love with it and still can find it moving. O.N. Have you ever performed in an opera? D.L. Of course. During the recording of Radamisto, we needed the sound of a sword being dropped on the stone floor of a prison cell. So I began my recording career by dropping a metal pipe on the floor of the recording studio. It was an impressive debut. 
O-N. What fascinates you about Baroque opera? D-L. Because I'm not a musician, I can't say anything intelligent. Listening to these operas is a transforming experience and provides me with more beauty than does anything else. O-N. What opera role would you most like to sing? D-L. Alcina. She rips the listener's heart to shreds because she's so very bad and so very vulnerable. And every aria she sings is the best aria in the opera. O-N. Have you ever considered the possibility of a Guido Brunetti opera? D-L. Perish the thought. O-N. What do you love most about opera? D-L. The ridiculous excess of it all. Something else to consider. Leon has found success by combining her two great passions, writing and opera. I got the idea for the first book during a rehearsal of La Favorita at La Fenice in 1990-something. When Gabriele Ferro, his wife and I, started talking about another conductor, she says. It occurred to me that killing a conductor in the dressing room of La Fenice might be a good beginning for a murder mystery, and I wondered if I could write one. Turned out I could. And now in books, Sister Act. A new book details two eccentric sisters' opera-inspired brand of heroism in wartime Europe. Overture of Hope by Isabel Vincent. Regnery History, 278 pages, $27.99. It might be tempting to regard the lives of Ida and Louise Cook as a peculiarly English folie à deux. Neither sister ever married. Their lives were focused on each other and on their shared obsession with opera. As young women, they would queue up for hours outside Covent Garden, waiting on fold-up canvas stools for cheap seats. They also pursued their opera idols, becoming chaste groupies for a number of them. Then the rise of Hitler turned them into unlikely heroines as they used their eccentric energy to save Jewish musicians from the Third Reich. As author Isabel Vincent writes in her preface to Overture of Hope, they were too obvious to be suspicious. Born into modest circumstances, the Cooks lived with their parents in a working-class London suburb. Amalita Gallikurchi's recording of Unbeldi drew them to Covent Garden for Butterfly and other operas, and when the Italian prima donna made her British debut in 1924, they attended all her concerts and managed to meet her backstage. The Cook's star conquests also included Rosa Poncel and Ezio Pinza, but their most momentous opera fan liaison was with conductor Clemens Krauss and his wife soprano Viorica Ursuliak at the Covent Garden premiere of Strauss's Arabella. Around this time, Ida started writing romance novels under the pen name Mary Burchell, her maiden effort wife to Christopher, centered on a tall, handsome conductor clearly modeled on Krauss. Dozens of sudsy novels followed, ultimately netting Ida a cumulative figure of 500,000 pounds 
and allowing the sisters to rent a fashionable apartment in London's Dolphin Square. In the summer of 1934, the Cooks made their first visit to the Salzburg Festival. It was right after a group of Nazis had assassinated Austrian Chancellor Engelbert Dolfus, but the sisters' main reaction to the cataclysmic event was to worry that it might stymie their Austrian visit and a re-encounter with Krauss and Ursuleak. Ursuleak introduced the Cooks to Mitia Mayer Lisman, the festival's principal lecturer, and asked them to look after her German friend in a tone of urgency that the sisters scarcely comprehended. Back in England, Mayor Lisman revealed that she was Jewish and that her religion now put her in jeopardy. Don't you think this will pass? asked Louise. I mean, it's all so silly. The cooks soon threw themselves into their rescue efforts, making numerous trips to Germany and Austria, haranguing consulate personnel, and giving speeches at home to raise awareness of the plight of the Jews. The Dolphin Square apartment became crowded with exiles. Refugees needed financial guarantees in order to immigrate to England, a burdensome requisite considering that the Nazis confiscated the Jews' money and most of their material goods. The cooks managed to smuggle valuable jewels and furs out of Nazi territory by wearing them as their own. The sisters' genteel eccentricity here became an asset. Border guards had no reason to suspect two oddball English spinsters of engaging in a form of espionage. All told, they saved dozens of lives. Vincent has done an estimable job of chronicling the lives of these two remarkable women. Still, she clearly has not brought any special depth of operatic knowledge to this project, and her description of the opera world sometimes betrays a degree of naivete. So does the book's subtitle. The Cooks rescued many musical figures, but none of opera's Jewish stars were among them. Did the marketing team not read the manuscript? The author, though, is indisputably a good storyteller, and in Overture of Hope, Ida and Louise Cook have provided an excellent story to tell. By Fred Cohn And now in review from around the world, a world premiere at the Met, Composer Kevin Putz's mellifluous, well-crafted score was the most satisfying element of The Hours. North America, The Hours, New York City. Much effort and professional skill has gone into the creation and production of The Hours. The new opera, an adaptation of Michael Cunningham's 1998 novel and its 2002 film rendering, has drawn from composer Kevin Putz a mellifluous, well-crafted score. For its staged premiere, seen on the November 22nd opening night, the Met called forth its top resources, the celebrated orchestra and chorus, both in ship-shape form under music director Yannick Nézé-Séguin. A kinetic Fila McDermott production that sent ballet dancers whirling across the stage, and a big cast led by three famous singers. The elaborate apparatus was impressive, but shortly into the evening's three-hour span, I found myself wondering why anyone would want to turn the hours into an opera in the first place. 
Like Cunningham's novel, the opera follows three women from three different eras, each traversing a single day. Virginia Woolf, living in a London suburb in 1923, strains to make progress on her book, Mrs. Dalloway. In 1949, Los Angeles, a reading of Wolfe's novel impels housewife Laura Brown to confront the limitations of her own life. The novel's contemporary, i.e. 1990s heroine, is Clarissa Vaughn, a book editor living in Greenwich Village who, like her namesake, Clarissa Dalloway, spends her hours preparing to throw a party. Much of Cunningham's book proceeds in a murmur, its action largely taking place as interior monologue within the minds of its three protagonists. Greg Pierce, in his libretto, has inevitably imposed a significant change in tone. He has rendered some of the heroine's ruminations into operatic scenes, as projected into the 3,800-seat auditorium. They in no way achieve the illusion that we're listening in on private thoughts. One particular piece of dramatic business illustrates how thoroughly unsuited Cunningham's material is to operatic treatment. In both novel and opera, Laura shares a brief, surprising kiss with her neighbor Kitty. They are both afflicted and blessed, full of shared secrets, striving every moment, Cunningham writes. In the opera, the moment loses its complexity and ambiguity. Without the authorial voice framing the action, it seems that we are witnessing a simple coming-out story. That flattening-out effect can be felt throughout the opera. It synopsizes the novel competently without offering persuasive reasons for our attention. Puts his work provided the evening's most satisfying element, the music morphs to reflect the milieu of its storylines, most notably when, in the Los Angeles scenes, it takes on elements of heyday of Hollywood movie scores. The novel's flash-forward preface, depicting Wolfe's 1941 suicide by drowning, has been omitted from the opera, but Putz has nonetheless incorporated the writer's watery death into the musical texture. The cascading current figures lend the proceedings a degree of impetus lacking in the action. The weakness of the work's dramaturgy stymied all three of the central performers. Joyce DiDonato sounded great as Wolf, her voice having recently acquired a range of welcome dark colors. But the character, deprived of her interiority, registered as merely a cardigan-clad killjoy. Kelly O'Hara did not make as vivid an effect with Laura Brown as she has with her performances on Broadway. O'Hara's light soprano, while perfectly audible, had little impact, and her physical portrayal seemed similarly small-scaled. It no doubt would register more strongly on the HD transmission than it did in the house. This was Renee Fleming's first appearance on the Met stage since she retired from the standard repertory with the 2017 Rosen Cavalier, and she demonstrated that her virtues and faults have both endured. When called upon to sustain tones in her upper register, Fleming showed that she can still produce as glorious a sound as can be imagined. But she did not remotely embody a literary bohemian 
and her impenetrable English diction made her scenes of arioso declamation all but meaningless. Denise Graves, as Clarissa's life partner, Sally, gave their relationship a degree of context missing in Fleming's work. Sean Panikar's steely tenor conveyed Leonard Wolfe's ongoing vexation with his wife, but the character as written is little more than a scold. Brandon Seidel played Dan Brown, Laura's husband, his warm bass baritone conveying both affection and complacency. The robust good health of Kyle Kettleson's bass baritone seemed ill-suited to the role of Richard, Clarissa's AIDS-stricken close friend and former lover. The character of Barbara, a retired soprano now running a flower store, allowed Kathleen Kim to punctuate an ensemble with the Queen of the Night's Fioritura in one of Putz's happiest inventions. I could not quite figure out the dramatic purpose of the character listed as Man Under the Arch, but it did allow Putz to blend John Holliday's brilliant countertenor into the musical texture. By Fred Cohn. Rigoletto, New York City. On November 10th, Bartlett shares Weimar-inspired production of Rigoletto, which had its Met debut last season, returned to the company with an understated opening night performance that featured the debuts of French tenor Benjamin Bernheim as the Duke, Russian mezzo-soprano Igol Akhmetsina as Madalena, and Italian conductor Speranza Scapucci leading the Met Orchestra. Scherer's production is an overall improvement on its predecessor, Michael Mayer's garish Las Vegas setting of Verdi's timeless tale of corruption, vengeance, and fate. The careless excesses and disquieting undercurrent of impending catastrophe, suggested by the lightly applied Weimar aesthetic, are apt and draped easily over the skeleton of the story. Since her Met debut in 2019, Italian soprano Rosa Faola has sung Gilda in three different runs of the opera, including the debut of this production on New Year's Eve 2021. In this performance, Faola sang mostly Come Scritto, without the optional acuti, save for an unexpected and rushed E-flat at the end of C Vendetta. The rush to and off the note may have been the doing of Scapucci, who seemed to catch several of the principals off guard with faster-than-expected tempos throughout the evening. Fiola made for a generally lovely Gilda, though she lacked both heft in the lower register and sparkle in the high one. Her caranome was simply and prettily sung, without the peaks and valleys that tell you who Gilda is, a young woman who is either on the verge of a lusty sexual awakening or transported to an exalted, dreamy-eyed revelation. Bernheim's Duke was more menacing and calculating than seductive and charismatic, which made the character more of a dangerous egomaniac. This accentuated the misogynistic bravado of Questo Oquella and La Donna e Mobile, but made the Duke's humanizing, introspective moments, Parmi Vader, less effective. 
At this performance, he understandably took a moment to warm up, and while the animalistic roar with which he approaches top notes can be thrilling, the unevenness of his instrument, a bright, reedy middle and a stentorian, blustery top, was often jarring dramatically and musically. Quinn Kelsey, on the other hand, sang a thoughtfully musical rigoletto, modulating his large voice from tenderness to rage to despair with ease and a true musician's intellect. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.